All right, you can take your Bibles and turn with me this evening, please, to Colossians chapter 3. This morning in our time together, we contemplated the foundational joy rooted in the gift of grace received by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we took the time necessary to remind ourselves that grace is a free gift. It's accompanied by no obligation or merit or worth or effort on our part. If it did, then it would not be a gift. It would not be grace. It would be a merit-based transaction. So that the things which I receive, I would be receiving as compensation, as the payment of a debt, not as a gift. So then we're saved by the one who was delivered for our offenses and raised for our justification. That's Romans 4.25. That's what we talked about this morning. And of course, there is so much more. And by the way, as I mentioned, next week, this time, this place, uh, we'll be talking quite a bit more about grace. Remember, we started part one of grace, recognizing the superiority of grace last week. This week, we're on resurrection. Next week, we're back into grace again and talking about the definition of grace, understanding exactly what grace is and why we understand it to be what we say it is. As I was just saying, though, there's so much that could be said about the resurrection and its significance to the believer. I mentioned this morning, just in passing, and in one sense we'll do the same this evening, uh, that the reality of Jesus' resurrection is not just the reality of salvation uh, from sin, being born again, being justified, imputed righteousness. It's also the hope of the resurrection. It's the hope of that which is to come. Because Jesus rose from the dead, so too we can rest assured that those who follow him will also experience a resurrection unto life. So Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, 53 and 54, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. The corruption of our flesh will give way to the incorruption of the resurrection. Jesus being the first to rise from the dead, but certainly not the last to rise from the dead into this eternal life. Not the first to be risen from the dead, but the first to rise into eternal life, right? Into the resurrection. And we know this to be true. This evening, I want to take things in a different direction even than this as it relates to the resurrection. And there are a couple of different passages that we could go to in order to establish this idea. This morning we were in Romans 3 and 4. We could go to Romans 7 and 8 and establish this principle this evening. But instead I'd like to explore the concepts from Colossians chapters 2 and 3. The epistles of Ephesians and Colossians are very similar. They follow a structure that is actually not just similar among each other, but is very typical of most Pauline epistles, especially those directed toward churches as opposed to personal letters such as Timothy and Titus. The structure of Paul and of his writings typically follows a pattern. He begins by teaching doctrine, truths, simply stating truths. As a matter of fact, this is the pattern that I have generally used throughout the years as a template. Uh, I've been a little bit more flexible in more recent years as it relates to this. Uh, You used to see, and you don't see anymore as often, but you used to see on these slides on the top, it would say understand or apply. And that came from this idea where the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you the nitty gritty of what the text says, And then we'll fall into application of what this means to us. And I still do that somewhat regularly as it relates to that structure. And I I, uh, have drawn that structure from Paul. 
because that's how Paul wrote so many of his epistles. He began with teaching, and in Colossians, it's chapters 1 and 2, and Ephesians, it's chapters 1, 2, and 3. And he taught the, 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 the truths of God, the doctrines of God, and then he would roll from, from teaching to, as it were, application. Still doctrine, of course, but it's from understanding to application. And that would be Colossians 3 and 4 and Ephesians 4 through 6. And that's the, 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 the structure that we would typically see here. So in Colossians, as I mentioned, 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2 are doctrine. The first two chapters, doctrinal in nature, teaching the theological truths that are rooted in the reality of Christ and of the relationship of the believer to Christ. And then the second two chapters, the final two chapters, are more practical in nature, teaching the implications of the truths which Paul has just taught. And, of course, what we're going to focus on as our passage is Colossians 3, we're going to focus on the beginning of the practical, of the application idea. But, in order for us to truly understand the practical, we need to at least have a grasp of the doctrine that underlies it. And if I were to sum up the teaching of Colossians chapters 1 and 2, and also, by the way, the general teaching of Ephesians 1 through 3, it would be, our position in Christ. Where we stand before God because of what Christ has done for us. We stand before God holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in His sight by virtue of what Jesus did for us. But Colossians also carries an emphasis, an emphasis which is not as strong in Ephesians. Obviously, God did not give us two books that said the exact same thing, right? That wouldn't be very helpful to us. Uh, he gave us three Gospels that are very, very similar, but they all have uh, decided differences that, uh, that matter. And then Ephesians and Colossians are very similar, but they also have decided differences that matter. And Colossians, as Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, uh, he's focusing upon the danger of false teachers that seek to tarnish the distinctives of Christian liberty. Now, we talked about this last week in this hour uh, in Hebrews, talking about the superiority of grace to the law. And and. I mentioned in that time that there were a number of passages where Paul would speak to this outside of just Hebrews. And I talked about Romans, and we looked at Romans a little bit, and I talked about Galatians, and we looked at Galatians a little bit. And in fact, I even read Colossians, right? Because these speak to this very idea, and they speak to it quite heavily. So he compelled the hearers to fight against the temptation to uh, rest their hearts upon traditions and customs at the expense of doctrines. And this is a great temptation for any believer, one which must be resisted. But with this resistance comes another temptation. With, the, the, with grace comes a, another temptation. And that temptation is that when I at once decouple myself from the fundamental compulsions of tradition and custom. So I do not feel as though I have to taste not, touch not, handle not, and all of the things that the law required, but that grace does not. When I recognize the liberty that I have in Christ and I recognize what it means that I can live in this life of grace, I am then tempted to take these ideas and fall into a sort of Christian libertinism where I fail to regard the importance of expectations at all, where I fall out of liberty and into license, 
In other words, when I start to understand the liberty that grace affords, it is easy to overextend my liberty and get into areas where I do not have liberty, but calling them liberty. Where I go beyond using my liberty and step into abusing my liberty. Where I start to see the interactions of the human and the material as insignificant or inconsequential at all. And this can lead to a great imbalance. And it is balance that is well represented in Colossians. So in Colossians chapter 2, Paul is teaching about the reality of our liberty, warning the readers against falling for beguiling words which compel them into bondage and traditions of men. We read much of this last week, but I'd like to read a little bit more of it this week. So the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened, that word meaning made alive, to Together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. So Paul gives this warning against being drawn away through philosophy or vain deceit, remarking that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in the person of Christ. So that absent any religious demand or expectation, we are yet complete and that completion is in Christ. Paul then uses the example of circumcision to prove this point, that whether a man's flesh is cut or remains uncut makes no difference in the spiritual. Those who are in Christ have fulfilled every single one of God's righteous demands by virtue of being in Christ. And those who are out of Christ have fallen short of every single one of God's righteous demands, regardless of what customs or traditions they keep. And this is verse 12. Excuse me, it is verse 12 that stands out as the fundamental point, which then we will carry into chapter 3, of which we read already, buried with him in baptism, wherein ye are risen with him, also are risen with him, through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Now, this verse is not speaking of the day when we will be raised from the dead at the last trump at the end of the age, but rather it's a theological concept. Buried with him in baptism. If that sounds familiar, it should be, because it's very, very similar to what we read in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. This is a present concept. This idea of being buried with him in baptism, risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. We are already judicially buried and risen with Christ. This does not set aside the the reality of the resurrection that is coming, but it does speak to a spiritual reality that when I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, we talked about this last week when we were talking about the superiority of grace, 
I am judicially buried with Christ, risen with Christ. I am given, my spirit is quickened, is what the word is used in Colossians, is made alive. And through that quickening, I am compelled unto righteousness. The old man is crucified, and I'm raised to walk in newness of life, in a different way of living, a different paradigm for life. Newness of life. This is the new man. This is the new birth. And this is what Paul is speaking of in Colossians chapter 2, that because of the new birth, whereby we are raised to walk in newness of life, in a spiritual life, unencumbered by the rudiments and traditions of this world as it relates to those carnal practices or ordinances, though of course we still live in this world, right? I cannot just say, well, I'm buried with Christ and risen with Him and I walk in newness of life and I can reject the rudiments of this world so I'm not going to eat. No, because you still have a physical body. You've got to eat or you die. You can't just say, well, I'm not going to sleep. No, you have a physical body. Your body still needs sleep. It still needs food. You are still bound to the necessary sustaining things uh, of this earth that sustain the earthly vessel that we operate in. Yet we are risen with Christ, dead to sin, forgiven of our trespasses, all the handwriting of ordinances having been nailed to his cross. There is nothing now that condemns us. Who is he that will condemn you? All of those ordinances, all of those expectations, all of those unrighteousnesses, everything has been nailed to his cross. And we are raised to walk in a newness of life. The simple way that we would describe this is not a religion, but a relationship, right? And this forms the backdrop for the instruction that we find in Colossians 3. So today is Resurrection Sunday. And we've remembered grace. And we've rejoiced in Christ's victory. And we've rejoiced in the hope that we have because of Christ's victory. And then as we talked about at the end this morning, for that second group of people, we talked about those who were unbelievers and, and, and the need to come to the cross to be saved. But then we talk about those who are believers. And we know that there's the hope of the resurrection, and I mentioned that this morning and this evening. And that is an important remembrance for this day. But there's something else here. That every time we call to mind the resurrection of Jesus Christ, every time we remember that Jesus is risen from the dead, that we are risen with him, It reminds us, buried with him by baptism into death, raised to walk in newness of life. May today remind us that we have been called to walk in newness of life. Well, what does newness of life look like? And that's really Colossians 3, 1 through 17. So Paul says this as he gets into application. If ye then be risen with Christ, Colossians 3, 1 and 2, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things in the earth. 
My association with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ frees me from the rudiments of this world. That means I'm not bound by ordinances. I'm not bound by traditions. But that unbinding is designed to work unto a very specific end. Namely, that my affections would be placed upon the, not upon the things of this earth, but upon the things of the life that is to come. It unbinds me from not just the, the uh, requirements of the rudiments of this world, the traditions of men, but it also unbinds me from my connection to them, my affection for them, and my affection gets placed on something different, namely, placed upon the things that are above. So that as Paul spoke in chapter 2 of not being bound by rudimentary religious things in this world, taste not, touch not, handle not, he speaks also of the affections for things which are earthbound, of which we'll speak of in a moment. Instead of the fundamental principle of living in the power of the resurrection is that our affections be ever resting upon the life that is to come, the principles of the life that is to come, the principles of the one who is raised again from the dead. That we would lay up treasure in heaven. So we continue. For ye are dead, verse 3, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. We place our affection on things above because this is where our lives truly exist. This is where we live. We are called ambassadors in the New Testament. The idea of the ambassador is that you are representing a foreign land, that you are in a foreign land as a representative of your homeland. We are, this, uh, the, the, the old song says, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. This is the fundamental reconfiguration that happens when we realize that we are risen with Christ. This is the walking in newness of life, that we understand we are dead and our life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear. We live for him because he is our life. He is the originator of our life. He is the one who enables us to walk in newness of life. But he is also our hope of eternal salvation. And if it is that, that end, that appearing with Christ in glory, if that is our end, then what should that mean for our today? If that is what we are destined unto, then that is the thing unto which all of our affections and longings ought to be directed. Now, what does this look like? What does it look like to live in this manner? What does it look like for our affections to be on things above and not on things on the earth? What are the duties, as it were, of one who is risen with Christ? What does this new mindset look like? Verses 5 through 7. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. Set your affection on things above. To do this is to not have any affection for the things which exist in direct contradiction to the principles of Christ. The list here that's given, fornication, that's sexual sin, uh, 
Uncleanness, this is impurity, the general word for impurity. These are very generalized terms here. Paul is not getting into the nitty-gritty. He's using generalized terms. Sexual immorality is one of those terms. There's a great deal of things that fall under that. Uncleanness, impurity of thought, word, or deed. There's a great deal of things that fall under that. Inordinate affection, that's the idea of... uh, um, Anything perverse or unnatural uh, that, that isn't in, in perhaps even instinctually a desire of the human heart, but is unnatural to the heavenly condition. Those things which are, as, as we talked about last week in Hebrews 13.9, strange, right? Foreign. Foreign to, the, to, the, to, to, to Christ. Evil concupiscence. Concupiscence being a craving. And evil concupiscence being a craving for that which is outside of God's will or outside of God's design. That you, you see God's design and you, you look at the things that are outside of God's design and you long for those things. And then covetousness. The base desire for the goods of this world that operates above the love for the things of Christ. And all of these are basically the base, the base desires of the flesh versus the base desires of the spirit. I was talking with Junior after the service today, and, and, and uh, he was mentioning some things about adulthood. And he was saying how he has been told by adults that as you get older, uh, you, you uh, don't want to stay up till all hours of the night anymore, and you don't want to eat a bunch of junk food, and, and that these things are no longer things that are, are desirable uh, for those who become adults. And, and he said, but that doesn't really make sense to me, because he says, as I get into my, as I am making this transition from childhood into adulthood, those things that are, were those base desires of childhood, I still am all about those things, and those things sound good to me me. And, uh, and, and it seems like that would be the same way with adulthood, where those, those, those base desires, right, stay up all night, stay up till two in the morning, eat a bunch of junk food, are still there. And I said, well, in one sense, you're correct. It is not necessarily that as you get older, that base fundamental desire to stay up all night and to eat a bunch of junk food goes away. I said, but what actually happens, the process of maturing that happens is this, that you have priority changes, that you have a family and you have a job and you have a house to keep up and you have all of these things. And you say, my desire to invest time in my family is worth more than me staying up all night and then not being able to invest in them. My desire to provide for my family is worth more than me staying up all night and being immature and irresponsible with my time. My desire to get to work and to be able to functionally do the job that I've been asked to do is more important to me. It's not necessarily that the, the base allure of staying up all night and, and, and eating a bunch of junk food goes away. It's that there are things that claim more of your loyalty and love than that. And so you say, I just don't want to do those things anymore because there are better things to do. It's the same with eating a bunch of junk food. It's not as if none of us wants to eat junk food, but you say the cost of eating junk food is not worth, the the, the price of eating it is not worth eating it. Whether that's health problems or long-term health problems or whatever it might be, it's not worth it. And so it's not that you don't want to in the same way you've always wanted to. It's that you want something else more. And I told him, I said, this is very, very similar to the Christian life. It is not that when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, the base 
human desires unto the things that we read here. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's not as if those things necessarily go away, but rather it is that when you weigh them against the spiritual, when you see them in light of what you have in Christ, and you recognize as you mature that what you have in Christ, that what Christ offers by grace through faith, that the rewards of grace are so much greater and that the responsibilities are so much heavier upon one who is enlightened to the responsibilities of grace. You see those things and you say, I cannot waste my time in sin. I have no time for this. I have no will for this because I don't have a will for the consequences of it. I cannot lose my family to sin. I cannot lose myself to sin. I cannot lose the relationships I have to sin. Sin always takes more than it asks than it says it will take. It always brings you farther than it says it will. It is devastating. And, and when you're in Christ, you can see that and you say it's not worth it. So your affection, it's not as if that base the base desire of the flesh goes away, but rather your affections turn to the things that are above because you see those things in every way, shape, and form as superior. And that's the idea of Colossians 3. Little did he know that he was going to, 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 to give me an, an illustration this morning for tonight's sermon. But that's the idea of Colossians 3. That is the basic idea. These very natural human emotions, things in which Paul says the unbeliever walks and lives. The the unbeliever lives in this place. No matter how moral or immoral they are in, in in a cultural way, they live in this place of fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. This, these are base human instincts of the sin, of, of the sin nature of, of, sin, of the flesh. They're carnal. They exist in fundamental contradiction to the principles of Christ. And if you indeed are risen with Christ and you see what you have in Christ, we'll seek those things. Why? Well, because the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience for those things. Now, this is not a threat. The wrath of God is not going to fall on you if you're a believer. How do I know that? Because Christ took that on the cross. Chastening? Yeah, we know from Hebrews 12 that happens. Correction? Yep, we know from Hebrews 12 that happens. But not wrath. So then what, what is this here? Well, think of it this way. You're the child of the king. And you've seen this before with politicians or whoever it might be. You're the child of the king. And the king sets laws in place against stealing. And the king sets laws in place against uh, um, laundering and against all, all, all manner of, uh, of illegalities. Of course, murder and adultery and such. And the king is angry at those who do such things and they stand before him in judgment and he passes judgment upon them and he gives them tremendous consequences for their wrongs. And you as the child of the king are looking at 
the opportunities that lay before you. And you have opportunities to steal. You have opportunities to cheat. You have opportunities to strong-arm people. You might even have more opportunities, in a sense, than, the, than, than those who are not the child of the king because you have this connection. And so you have all of these possibilities at your disposal, but you say, wait a minute. These are the very things that the wrath of my father comes down upon these others for. How could I possibly shame my father, shame my name, shame my position? How could I possibly pursue these things for which the wrath of my father comes down on all of these others for? That's the idea. If these are the things for which the wrath of God falls upon the children of disobedience, if these are the things that I used to walk in before I was a believer, but when Christ redeemed me, he redeemed me out of these things, then why would I possibly go back to them? Why would I possibly live in them? How could I in any way, shape, or form feel them to be superior? That's another conversation Joel and I had this morning. It wasn't Junior this time where we said, how is it possible that anyone does not see the superiority of this system, <laughs> right? And we know that, that narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it, that, that, that wide is the way that leads to, to, to uh, damnation. Many there be that go in there at. And, and we know that very few, relatively speaking, will receive this way. But then you say, how is that possible because it's such a superior way? And if you have seen that, and you know it to be such a superior way, then why would you fall back into the principles for which things sake the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience? Why would you fall back into the principles in which you walked before you realized what you had through Christ? And so these things exist in fundamental contradiction to the principles of Christ. As believers, those who are dead to this world and risen with Christ, it's our privilege not only to set aside the rudiments of the world as it relates to the religious demands on our lives in order to incur favor with God, but also set aside the rudiments of this world as it relates to the carnal allures upon our lives and bodies. But notice where this mortification comes from. Not from a deep capacity to discipline myself into denying what I love. But as I've said, a transition of what I love so that I no longer love those things that are rooted in this world and I instead love the things which are above. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is not about you denying yourself every, everything that you like and disciplining yourself to not do the things you really want to do. The Christian life is a process of growth. And notice I say it that way, it's a process of growth. Is all of this going to go away in one day? Are you just going to wake up one day and be sinlessly perfect? Well, you're not going to wake up and be sinlessly perfect until you awaken glory. The Christian life, like any other process, is a process. It's a growth. It's a journey. You've got to grow. But the trajectory of this growth is that you are falling out of love with the, the rudiments of this world and in love with the things of the world that are to come. You are transitioning your loyalties away from the things of this earth and toward the things which are above. 
And this doesn't mean you won't crave the things of this world because you still have this body of flesh. You're still subject to the fundamental flaws and the limitations and the compulsions of the earthly body. And that's going to... Now, now let, let every meal be a reminder of that to you. That every time you get hungry... And you have to sit down in order that you can fulfill that need for food. Let that be a reminder to you that you still live in an earthly body. And that those cravings are not going to just go away. But like with food where you say, though I have a craving for any number of foods, there's only certain foods I'm going to put into my body for certain reasons. Let that be a reminder to you as well. that our affections and desires and priorities ought to rest upon higher goals than just fulfilling cravings. Rest upon things which might even stand in fundamental contradiction to the carnal cravings and the priorities of the world around us. And our affections turn away from these cravings and priorities specifically because we know that God hates them. And that God has something better for us. We've talked about that in our Genesis series. That what Satan was fundamentally attempting to do in the Garden of Eden was to convince Eve and Adam by proxy that they were missing out on something fundamentally better that God was withholding from them. You shall be as God's knowing good and evil. And it got into their mind Is God withholding something from me that's better than what I have now? But if we are risen with Christ, we recognize that Christ has given us the better. And so we pursue that. There should be a deep and a truly overwhelming urgency to live in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to live in all of the rewards of the grace that was purchased on the cross. It's a very similar perspective to the one we see in Romans chapter 6. I've already referenced it several times. Romans 6, not this particular passage, but notice what he says in verses 20 to 22, what, what Paul says here. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. This perspective, where you look at the carnal and base desires, those things that Colossians speaks of here, fornication, uncleanness, um, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, that you look at those things and you say, yes, On a fundamental level, the flesh still craves those things. But what fruit was there in those things? But when I lived in those things, that was shameful. And I can look back now and I'm ashamed. Now, for our second and third generation Christians, you may not be able to see that as well. And I'm included in that. By God's grace, you have perhaps been protected from having to look back and say, wow, that was shameful in a truly deep way. Maybe you look back and think of lies, you know, whatever it might be, but not in any fundamentally scarring way. And this is where we hear, this is where you can benefit from the lives of others who can give that testimony. 
and say, there was no glory in the things of which I'm now ashamed. The end of those things was death. But now I've been made free from sin. I've become a servant of God, risen with Christ into newness of life. My fruit is unto holiness and the end thereof is everlasting life, not death. I'm laying up treasure in heaven every day. I can do that every day. A superior way in every way. This is the affection change of the resurrection. We continue in Colossians 3. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. So we see this command to continue, and, and, and we see the put-off command here. Uh, we oftentimes call this in our circles the replacement principle. It's perhaps a little bit clearer uh, in Ephesians, but we also see it here very clearly in Colossians. Remember that those, the, those two books are very similar. Put off what? Put off anger, uh, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, all of those things that come out of us that are based inside of us of, uh, of, of those, those base anti-Christian, anti-grace instincts. That we would not lie to one another. We would stand in our integrity. Why? Because we've put off the old man. It's not because I'm going to get in trouble. It's not because it's simply the wrong thing to do. It's because I've put off the old man and these are vestiges of the old man. Blasphemy, that's a vestige of the old man. Anger, that's a vestige of the old man. Filthy communication, that's a vestige of the old man. Get rid of that stuff. That's the old man. What, what fruit is there in that? The end of those things is death. Put it off. Shed it. Take it off. Seeing that you've put off the old man and you've put on the new man, a new man that is renewed after the image of him that created him. A new man that is being shaped in the image of Christ. That we are risen with him. Buried with him by baptism into death. Raised to walk in newness of life. This is Christ's life. Follow me, Christ said. And there, Paul says there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free. Rather, we are all in Christ. We are raised to walk in Christ-likeness. And this is where the unity of the church comes from. This is where the fellowship of the believer comes from. This is why you struggle having unity with carnal Christians. This is why you struggle having unity with unbelievers. Why? Because they're not walking the same direction you are. Because all of the barriers, the external barriers have been broken down. You and I don't see Jew and Gentile. You and I don't see circumcision and uncircumcision. All of those things don't matter at all in the Christian life. It doesn't matter the color of our skin. It doesn't matter the, or, our, our national origin. All of, the, all of those things are, 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 are externals which are rooted only in this world and in this flesh. 
the, 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 the degree of melanin in our skin or the culture that we come from, those things are inconsequential in the church. Economic status is inconsequential in the church. But you know what matters? Christ, who is our life. And that's where the unity comes from. That's where the direction comes from. That's where fellowship comes from. So we replace the vestiges of the old man with those things which are rooted in the image of Christ. This is renewed in the knowledge of God. Christ alone. Christ is all in all. Christ is our focus. We all stay focused on Christ. We set our affection on things above. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all going to look the same, but it will mean we're all walking in the same direction. Right? Well, Pastor Colossians gives us great examples of what to put off, but where are the examples of what to put on? They're coming. I just haven't gotten there yet. Verses 12 through 14. Put on, therefore... As the elect of God, holy and beloved. That is who we are. Why do we put these things on? Because this is who you are in Christ. If you're the child of the king, you look at those things of which your father has, has hated. You look at those things of which uh, 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 you would be ashamed, that you would be ashamed to be called the son of the king and to do those things, those things that the wrath of, of God falls upon the children of disobedience for. Those things in which I walked before, before I, I, I walked in newness of life, th that was my life, and I reject those things because I'm the child of the king, and I put off those things, but what do I put on as the child of the king? As one who is the elect of God, as one who is holy and beloved by God. God loves me. God has declared me righteous. God is my father. What does it mean for me? What does a child of the king wear? This is what the child of the king wears. Bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, that's love, the, the not just giving things away, but the base word of love, which is the bond of perfectness, the thing that holds all of that which is right together, the thing which keeps all of what you're going to put on, on, is love. 1 Corinthians 13 makes that very plain, right? Now by these three, faith, hope, charity, but the greatest of these is charity. So instead of lying, speak the truth. Put off the lies, put on the truth. Stand in your integrity. Say what's right, do what's right. Instead of persistent anger, live in reconciliation with man. Instead of stealing, work so that you can give. Instead of tearing down with your speech, build people up. Be kind rather than unkind. Be patient rather than impatient. Be forgiving rather than unforgiving. Because this is what it means to walk in newness of life. Your affections ought to be drawn toward those things. Not because if you don't, the wrath of God will fall on you. Nope, the wrath of God fall, fall, already fell on Jesus. 
Not because you have to, but because this is, this is the superior way. Because you're the child of the king. Because you're risen with Christ. What glory is there in those things of which you're now ashamed? There's none. The vestiges of the old man, get rid of them. You're risen with Christ. Walk in newness of life. Submission to the Spirit of God means we set our affections on those things which reflect the fundamental contrast with that which is carnal. The opposite of lust is contentment. The opposite of violence is peace. The opposite of lies is truth. The opposite of dishonesty is honesty. The opposite of selfishness is selflessness. Those are the things of Christ. And so we place our affection on those things which bear the nearest reflection to the person of Christ. Because our affection is on Christ who was delivered for our offenses and who was raised for our justification. And we do this with the greatest loyalty. The bond of the complete man determined love. Love for the brethren, 1 John 3, 14. Love for your neighbor, Matthew 19, 19. Love for your enemies, Luke 6, 27. So we finish our passage today, 15 through 17. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. If ye be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Set your affections on things above. And as you do, you're mortifying the deeds of the flesh. You're putting off the old man. You're putting on the new man. You don't do this alone, though. We do this together. The peace of God rules in our hearts. We talked about this this morning as well from Romans chapter 5. Verses 1 and 2. That we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As the peace of God rules in our heart, as we have been called in one body, and we live thankful lives, the word of Christ dwells in us richly, in all wisdom. We teach, we admonish one another, songs and hymns and spiritual songs. We sing together with grace in our hearts to the Lord. And in everything that we do, whether it's in word or in deed, and this is the idea, this is the fundamental perspective. If we want to say, okay, pastor, what am I supposed to do? Well, you've got the put off and the put on list. Yeah, that's a pretty small list, pastor. There's got to be more to that. Well, in one sense, yes. In one sense, that's not a list. They're just examples. What is the list? The list is this. Do it everything in the name of Jesus. Can you do it in the name of Jesus? Can you live the way you're living? Can you put your affection on the, the things you have the affections on? Can you prioritize what you're prioritizing? Can you say what you're saying? Can you think what you're thinking? Can you do what you're doing? Can you watch what you're watching? Can you listen to what you're listening to? Can you do it in the name of Jesus? 
giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Where is your affection? Allow the word of God to dwell in you richly. Speak of it, sing of it, study it, live it. So that all things that we do are in the name of Jesus Christ. Giving thanks to God and the Father by him. It's by Christ. And this is what having our affections on things above looks like. This is what the crucified life looks like. Crucified, buried with him by baptism into death, raised to walk in newness of life. So that on this Resurrection Sunday, we remember that Jesus Christ is risen, but we remember that we are risen with him. And as Paul would say in Galatians chapter 2.20, he says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's, that's it. That's what we're talking about. That because I'm crucified with Christ, I live, but not really, Christ lives in me, who is my all in all. So the life that I live in this flesh, I live, as Colossians would say it, in the name of the Lord Jesus. As Galatians would say, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Why? Because he's the one who loved me enough to give himself for me. Mindset shift, Christian. We're not talking about you giving up everything you love. We're talking about what you love changing. Talking about the better way. Walking a better path. Because we are risen with Christ, we set our affections on things above. We mortify the deeds of the flesh. We put on the deeds of Christ. We come together as the redeemed. We dwell richly in the word of Christ. We sing of it. We read of it. We exhort each other unto it. And so much the more as we see the day approaching. And through it, the peace of God rules in our hearts as we live lives which are risen with Christ. Until the day that Christ comes again and we're given those resurrected bodies. Until the day that the mortal puts off this mortality and is clothed in immortality. And then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Then the cravings go away. You don't don't have to live with those anymore. But until that day, we walk in newness of life. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.